Sup, bros? Welcome back to another episode of Science Unscripted. Today, we're going to be continuing on our short little series on DNA. So today, we're going to focus on DNA replication, DNA transcription, and DNA translation. The next episode I do will be on epigenetic changes, as well as the gene regulation. So get excited for that. But now we're just going to focus on DNA replication. Now, this is the process by which the genome's DNA is copied in cells. This has to happen before cell division. Now, we know because obviously in cell division, the cell is dividing and has to make two identical. We're talking about mitosis, not meiosis. Well, this DNA replication occurs in meiosis as well, but we're focusing mostly on mitosis for this. So, um, the DNA has to be replicated because the cell has to divide into two daughter cells. Now, they both have to have genomes. They both have to have the exact same genetic information, so we need to replicate it. Because if we didn't, they would all each get half, or one would get one, and that wouldn't be great, because, well, they wouldn't know what to do. So, um, we know that DNA is replicated in a semi-conservative fashion, which means that one strand is going to each different daughter cell. So, each strand acts as a template for synthesis of a new complementary strand. So, basically, each cell gets one of the original dot, um, parent DNA strands. Okay. So before the DNA can actually re be replicated, the helix, remember, that cool little ladder shape that we talked about last time, must be unzipped into two different strands. Now obviously it has to because how else are you going to get into being able to copy the little um, nitrogenous bases? So the interactions between the base pairs must be broken then, and this is performed by DNA helicase, which disrupts the hydrogen bonding between the base pairs to separate the strands into a Y-shaped thing called a replication fork. Now, so you, basically, this also coincides with something called topoisomerase, which unwinds the chromosomes and DNA double helix by creating small little reversible cuts. It's actually really cool. Um, it cut, creates these small little reversible cuts in the DNA. It relieves the pressure during the uncoiling of the DNA um, while the helicase physically separates the strands of DNA. So topoisomerase kind of like relieves the pressure and gives the little like DNA a little massage while helicase physically separates the base pairs. Now um, this topoisomerase along the way of DNA replication can also prevent the DNA strands from recoiling because you know how um, DNA we talked about in the last episode is really really um, electrically charged and it's super strong, forms these super strong hydrogen bonds. So the pairs always want to be with each other. So they're going to always try and recoil. But so topoisomerase is what helps this so that we can do replication. Okay. So, um, remember that one strand, so we have the replication fork. Remember that one strand went in the five prime to three prime end and the other one in the three prime to five prime end. Now, um, DNA can only be replicated in the five to three prime end. So the leading strand, which is the one that was orientated in the three to five prime end, will get synthesized um, basically from the replication fork. It will be synthesized in the right direction. But there's something called the lagging strand, which is the one that was orientated in the five to three prime end. And because DNA replication only goes to five to three prime, this can't happen. It can't do it continuously. So it needs to be replicated discontinuously. So we'll talk a little bit more of that. But just remember, there's two strands. One is going to be formed continuously. The other is going to be formed discontinuously. So, once the DNA strands are separated, a short piece of RNA called a primer will bind to the three-prime end of the leading strand. Um, because remember, the leading strand um, will go from three to three to five prime, so it'll basically bind to the start of the of where the um, replication fork is. So it can be replicated continuously. 
So I would recommend, because I'm having a hard time explaining this, because you really need a picture, so I would recommend looking at an animation or a picture of this, because it's very hard to describe, which is another, again, one of the limitations of a podcast, but so I would recommend looking up a photo of this. But just know the leading strand is um, replicated continuously, while the lagging strand is discontinuous. So, primer binds to the 3 pi mm of the leading strand. Now, the primer is the starting point of replication. It's generated um, by the enzyme DNA primase, and um, basically what happens is that an enzyme complex known as DNA polymerase, polymerase sorry, create the new strand in a process called elongation. So there's five different types of pro- polymerases in bacteria and human cells. In bacteria, polymerase 3 is the major replication enzyme, while 1, 2, and 4 are responsible for error checking and repair. So basically polymerase 3 in um, bacteria does all the, it adds all the nucleotides to the strands, um, copies it, while 2, one, two, and four are responsible for kind of checking what it's done and making sure that there's no errors. However, in eukaryotes, we have our different naming system. We have polymerase alpha, delta, and epsilon are primary um, polymerases involved in replication. Um, so remember that alpha, delta, and epsilon. Just more Greek because we love Greek. So on the leading strand, the replication is continuous. We've already said that. So DNA polymerase will add nucleotides complementary to the strand in the five to three prime end meaning, again, it's continuous on the leading strand and lagging strand is discontinuous. Now, the lagging strand begins replication by binding with multiple primers. So because it's discontinuous and because you're continuously having to, as the replication fork opens, you have to synthesize. Basically, okay, so think of it this way. Replication fork is on the left. It's going from the right to the left. Now, the three to five, the, it has to be copied in the five to three prime end, but the five prime end is on the left of the lagging strand. So that's where it's being opened. So unlike the th- three to five prime end, which um, was the leading strand, that one can go, its end is the five prime end. So it's five prime end is on the right. So the RNA primer can bind to the f- right of the five prime end and basically follow behind the RNA polar, um, DNA helicase as it unwinds that DNA and create the polymerase can just follow behind it and continuously add on DNA nucleotides. However, the lagging strand, it's five prime, it's three prime end is on the right. So that's not the right, it can't do that. It can't go from three to five prime end. So the five prime end is on the left. So the, basically, as the DNA helicase unwinds the DNA, it has to start from the left and go to the right. Now, this is in the opposite direction. So you have to continuously wait for DNA helicase. This is on the lagging strand. You have to wait for DNA helicase to unwind the DNA, add a primer, and then go. And this happens in short little segments. So there's multiple primers that are needed instead of the leading strand, which only needs one primer. So each primer is about several bases apart. And basically the DNA polymerase adds nucleotides and then has to add another primer as the helicase unwinds. And then that adds more nucleotides to that. Now this forms small little fragments called Okazaki fragments, which yes, are an awesome name. So once the strands are replicated, an enzyme called exonuclease removes all the RNA primers from the original strands, which are then replaced with actual bases. So they're um, basically the RNA primers removed, put regular bases in for DNA. Now, another exonucleus proofreads the newly formed DNA to check, remove, and repair any errors. This is really important because we don't want any um, errors. So this is actually, it's really cool how this can happen because I'm pretty sure I heard a figure that it was like, there's about a hundred, maybe it was 
there's 110 million mistakes that are made out of the something like 100 billion or something nucleotides in your genome, which is a lot. But then it goes back down because of these proofreading mechanisms, it goes down to like one in that whole entire genome sequence. So these proofreading mechanisms are really amazing. So um, we have the nucleus, it proofreads it. Then DNA ligase joins, you remember those Okazaki fragments, how they're discontinued because you have to continuously make little disjoint ones. DNA ligase comes along and joins those together. So it forms two continuous strands. However, the ends of are a really big problem because polymerase, it needs a primer. So the primer can't, it can't add to the ends because um, it can only add nucleosides to the five to three prime direction. So if you remember, it has to add a primer and then synthesize and add new nucleotides, but because it's at the end, it can't do this. So this is why cells have telomer- telomeres. Now, telomeres are kind of like a buffer that are at the end of each of the chromosomes in the genes, and they kind of provide, they're like a extreme repeating sequence. So each time that DNA occur, the replication occurs, it cuts off a bit of the strands because it can't do the whole entire thing because of the whole lagging strand problem. So telomeres kind of perform this little buffer system. Now this is really, really important. And this is one of the major theories about aging is that the telomeres just get really, really short. And this is the Hayflick um, limit that I think I went over last, I might have gone over this last um, in the development episode, I think. But there's something called the Hayflick number or limit which is the amount of times that a cell can divide and replicate its DNA before it has to stop because there's going to be errors because the telomeres are too short. Okay, so we have a newly replicated form of DNA. It's two strands. There's now two DNA sets. Now that can then be used for cell division and it can go to do different daughter cells. So that's great. Now, on to DNA transcription. Now this is a different thing entirely, so don't worry. It doesn't go straight from trans. Um, from replication to transcription. Transcription occurs, it's the first step in gene expression. So this is when you're trying to get those genes, turn them into proteins. So the goal is to make a complementary mRNA strand, which stands for messenger RNA, from the DNA. Now this mRNA strand can then leave the nucleus and go to the um, cytoplasm to code in translation for proteins. So that's the goal, to make a complementary mRNA strand to basically act as a little messenger, hence its name, go from the nucleus to the cytoplasm and then code for proteins. So there's three steps. There's initiation, elongation, and termination. Now initiation initiation occurs when RNA polymerase binds to a sequence of DNA called the promoter. Now this is found at the beginning of a gene and each gene has its own specific promoter. So RNA polymerase then separates the DNA strands, providing, so remember how helicase did this, but no, it's polymerase. It provides the single-stranded template for transcription to occur. Now, it only uses one strand, which is called the template strand. It produces a copy, because we're adding complementary base pairs, it produces a copy of the other strand, which is called the coding strand. So remember, it's different than replication because polymerase does not need primers but uses a promoter and which is usually called like a region called a tata box in eukaryotes which is about 25 to 35 um base pairs upstream and it's um also single stranded it's producing one rna that's single stranded instead of two like a double stranded dna molecule this is just a single stranded mrna and it does not code the entire genome it only codes a specific gene Remember that. It's different how, that's how it's different from DNA replication. 
Now, the second part, elongation. The template strand acts as a template for DNA polar, RNA polymerase, sorry, to build upon and put these, add these complementary um, RNA nucleotides on. So it builds an RNA molecule by adding RNA molecule by adding complementary nucleotides from the five to three prime end. Now this is the key thing is that it uses uracil instead of thymine because if you remember uracil is the base, um, the RNA base that is the same as thymine. So just remember that. So it's adding RNA complementary nucleotides when you have an A instead of putting a T, you put a U. Now the last stage is termination. Now this is when sequences called terminators signal the RNA polymerase to stop and release from the transcript. Um, at the terminator region. So RNA polymerase dissociates, you're done replicating, mRNA goes off, and um, it's now done. However, before the mRNA can leave this nucleus and go to the cytoplasm where it can be used for translation, we have to have some pre-translational mRNA um, processing. So what's first add is that the immature, it's the mRNA that was produced is immature. So it must be converted to mature mRNA. mRNA. Sorry, I'm really slurring my words today, so bear with me, guys. So, first thing that's done is a 5' prime capping. Now, this is when there's an addition of a methylated guanine cap to the 5' prime end of mRNA. Remember, guanine is just, um, it's the complementary strand, the complementary base to cytosine. So, it's one of the nucleotide, nitrogen's bases. So, that binds the methylated guanine goes, it adds a methylated guanine cap to the 5' prime end of mRNA. Now, this is vital for recognition of the molecule by ribosomes, and it also protects the mRNA from degre degradation by RNAases. So, in the cytoplasm, we have a lot of these enzymes called exonucleases or RNAases, which kind of break down mRNA or RNA strands that they find. So, the mRNA needs protection from this, so this is what the methylated guanine cap at the 5' end helps with. Another thing that we have for pre-translational mRNA processing is polyadenylation. Now, as this might be, as you might have guessed, this is the addition of a poly-A tail to the 3' end of the mRNA, and if you've gotten anything from poly-A, it's just a repeating units of adenosine monophosphate. So, this stabilizes RNA and prevents degradation again, and it kind of acts as the binding site for the poly-A tail binding protein, which promotes export from the nucleus and translation. So it gets, the in the cytoplasm, the poly-A tail actually gets shorter and shorter due to the degradation and leads to less translation. So the poly-A tail helps protect kind of like telomerase, or it's not telomerase, telomeres, as kind of like a buffer, a buffer, because it helps as it is in the cytoplasm, that poly-A tail gets shorter and shorter, which then, as I already said about the Hayflick limit, that prevents from translation or in the Hayflick limit from like replication. So next pre-translational MNI um, processing is splicing. Splicing is when you remove introns, which are the non-coding sequences, and join together exons, which are the coding sequences. Now this happens by spliceosome excision, um, and it's catalyzed by the spliceosome, which splices introns containing a GU, so the sequence is GU, so guanine, uracil, at the five prime splice, um, and then AU, AG, sorry, at the three prime splice site. So this makes the mRNA into mature mRNA, and it's now ready to leave the nucleus. Woo, it's mature. Let's go. So it passes through pores in the nuclear envelope, and this is actually, there's a lot of research going on to how they do this. Normally, like currently, I think they just call them motor proteins, but the research shows that it binds to a protein, which then carries it through the pores to the cytoplasm, because 
that we got to figure out how it actually get th- gets through this port. So there's a lot of research going on right now. So that'd be really cool. If any of you guys have any information on that, please let me know. Next step, it's in the cytoplasm. This is where translation occurs. Now, in this step, genetic code carried by the mRNA, which we sequenced from the DNA strands, is used to produce a specific sequence of amino acids for a specific polypeptide. So the key vocabulary to know when I'm talking about translation is mRNA. That's the messenger RNA. That's the strand that came from the repli- um, from the transcribed DNA. tRNA. That's going to be little tiny transport RNAs. They're going to be inside the cytoplasm where translation occurs. Now they have a anticodon, which is um, the complementary base pairs to a codon. And a codon is the three base pair coding for a specific amino acid. So each mRNA um, strand, it gets read by three base pairs at a time. So these are codon and this codes for a specific amino acid. So you know, you've probably seen those amino acid charts to have like three letters, that's each codon. So tRNA has an anti-codon, which can then bind to those codons. So just remember that. Now it also carries a amino acid that is corresponding to that specific anti-codon. So, or the codon. So ribosome is the organelle where the translation occurs. It can either be in freely floating in the cytosol or it can be attached to the rough endoplasmic um, reticulum. Yes, that's right. So um, remember that it can either be in the cytosol, freely floating ribosomes, or it can be attached to the rough endoplasmic reticulum. And the reason it's called rough is because it has ribosomes. So cool. Now, once again, translation occurs in three steps and you might've guessed initiation, elongation and termination you know if they made a little bit more like i don't know ingenuitive about this but eh, it's pretty much the same thing anyway so it's fine so at initiation the start codon must be recognized now this is um at the five prime end it's usually aug so that codes for methionine which is amino acid it's usually at always at the, the first amino acid in a polypeptide chain because it's the start codon so um at the five prime cap of the mRNA, the small 40S subunit of ribosome will bind. So basically think of it, there's the mRNA strand, it's sitting flat. I don't know why I'm showing this with my hands because you can't see me, but I'm doing it, it's helping me process it. So the mRNA strand, it's sitting flat in this, um, then the small subunit of the ribosome comes up underneath it and kind of like cups it and it now provides a little shelf for the mRNA to stand. Then while that is happening, the a complex of tRNA and the subunit scans. Um, it kind of like the complex of like the tRNA. So the first tRNA that bond- binds for methionine will come with the small ribosome subunit and bind to that as well. So the subunit scans to find the start codon and then that will initiate um, the t- tRNA to bind to the start codon. So the large ribosomal subunit, once they find the start codon, then binds on top. So it forms a little like sandwich. You can think of a little hamburger kind of thing. Um, ribosome, ribosomal small subunit on the bottom, TNA, tRNA in the middle, kind of like, and then the um, large ribosome on top. So this forms the, something called the initiation complex. So the ribosome has three sites, the A site, the P site, and the E site. Now, two are binding sites. The P site, where the peptide chain is held, so that's where the initiator tRNA is at the beginning, that's the P site, and then A site, which accepts the new tRNA. So, in the start, methionine tRNA occupies the P position and the P site, 
and the amino acyl tRNA that is complementary to the next codon will bind to the A site using energy yielded from the hydrolysis of GTP. So basically, the um, ribosome will kind of see what's the next. So you have the mRNA. First thing is the AUG, the start codon that codes for methionine. The next three letter sequence of the codon will also have its corresponding anticodon. That tRNA that carries that anticodon will then come and bind at the A site. Now this will carry its own amino acid. So that binds to the A site using energy yielded from the hydrolysis of GTP. Now GTP, I'm pretty sure I talked about ATP before, but GTP is basically guanosine triphosphate. It's pretty much the same as ATP. They're both used in the same way. And there's actually an enzyme that converts GTP to ATP. So just think of it as ATP. It's an energy molecule. It's used um, to do reactions that require an input of energy. So methionine then moves from the P site to the A site. So the methionine basically forms a peptide bond with the new amino acid that was coded for that was currently occupying the A site. Then the two, um, so the, now there's about two new amino acids in the polypeptides. So the tRNA is no longer, that was in the P site, is no longer attached to an amino acid, so it just drops off and it leaves through the E site the E site to go find another complementary amino acid or it's amino acid that is coded by the, by the anticodon. So the ribosome then translocates or it moves along the mRNA molecule to the next codon. Again, this is through the use of the hydrolysis of GDP. So the peptide now is in the P site that was previously in the A site. It's gotten a little longer and the A site is once again open. So next, the new tRNA anticodon that Remember, reading the next sec sequence of three-letter bases, the codon, new tRNA that has that complementary anticodon will bind. And this continues. Basically, think of it as this way. So in the P site, you have the growing polypeptide. Then there's the A site. New, poly new tRNA will bind, carrying that specific anticodon on that amino acid. So think of it, the polypeptide in the P site, think of those amino acids as kind of like a little hat. They will transfer that hat to the guy at the A site. So think of P three people sitting on a couch, the f one at the P site, the little cushion in the middle is the P site, little cushion on the left, so the left side of the couch, so that your right side is gonna be the A site. Now someone is sitting on the P site, they have a tall little stack of hats. Someone comes to sit where the A site is or the left cushion, and the guy who is sitting in the middle kind of takes their hats off and gives it to the guy who's now sitting down on that left cushion. Then the guy on the left cushion moves to the middle. And then someone else comes and sits. And then he gives his hats to the guy who just sat down. So that guy now has the hats and he sits in the middle. And this continues and continues and continues, elongating the peptide chain and building up from the beginning methionine to the C, which is actually the N ternimal to the C ternimal, which is going to be the final amino acid. So this brings us to the third stage, which is termination. Now, one of the Basically, this whole cycle continues until one of the three stop codons enters the A site. Now, this is going to be UAA, UAG, or AGA. So, there's no tRNA molecule that binds to these codons. So, the peptide in the tRNA in the P site becomes hydrolyzed, releasing the polypeptide into the cytoplasm. And this is when they release... Um, this also occurs for a release factor. So, basically, the three co stop codons that I mentioned, they don't have a tRNA that binds to them. So they don't have a specific anticodon 
Um, they don't have an amino acid that they code for. So they're also called nonsense um, or non-coding um, mRNA or DNA because they don't have one that codes for it. So what they do have is something called a release factor. Now this release factor looks like tRNA and it enters into the A side. So it does this, but it instead of causing the polypeptide to grow more, it causes the termination and the release of the polypeptide. Now, once the polypeptide is released into the cytoplasm, the small and the large subunit of the ribosome then dissociate, ready to transcribe anew. Go meet another mRNA. They're not done yet. They've got to continue their work. So, we're done. Polypeptide is made. It's in the cytoplasm. Or, if the RNA, as remember how I said in the beginning when we were talking about ribosomes, it can either be free-floating in the cytosol, or it can be attached to the endoplasmic reticulum. If it's attached to the endoplasmic reticulum, the polypeptide will get released into the endoplasmic reticulum where it will go other post-translational modifications. So after translation, um, I'm going to touch on this a little bit. I'm not going to go into it that much. I'll go into it more a little bit next episode, but many protons go to the Golgi apparatus to be modified and then sent out to wherever they go. Um, many will assume their tertiary shapes. So remember, if you've ever heard of um, protein folding, basically after translation, this is when protein folding will occur and they will form into their various shapes depending on their charges and the amino acids and the bonds in between the amino acids. And then finally the bonds between the peptide bonds um, between the peptide chains that are formed by those amino acids. So we'll do another episode on protein like shapes because that's pretty complex by itself. But then the um, released polypeptide can also bind onto other polypeptides. Um, so I'll, again, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. So after it's released, after the polypeptide is released into the cytosol or the endoplasmic reticulum, post-translational modifications will occur, um, kind of similar to the post-trans, the pre-translational modifications that had to occur to the mRNA. The there's also post-translational modifications. So, um, yeah. So that's pretty much it. Remember, I'm gonna talk. I'll talk about epigenetic changes and genetic controls and gene regulation in the next episode. So thanks for bearing with me. I know that DNA replication and transcription and translation, they're kind of repetitive. So once you get like, I would recommend looking up like an animation of this. Once you get the basic idea, they get kind of easy to understand. It's just about remembering all the key little things that happen, all the enzymes. And then once you understand the basics, you can go on to understanding each specific enzyme that's bonded to it, each specific um, chemicals, because remember, the RNA polynomies, how it moves along, it can't just move along by itself. It has to do it by some chemical reaction. So you guys can delve deeper into that. I might do that as a specific episode if I get a lot of feedback wanting to. But I will say there's a lot more complexity to this kind of process. What I did was just a basic outline. So if you're interested, I highly, highly recommend going and listening to stuff like that or looking at some animations or delving into your research. Be curious, get some knowledge. As always, science enthusiasts, awesome talking to you and peace out.